0: Uh, over the years, that during the, uh, during the summer months, usually, generally, we might take a short break from um, whichever book we are working through to look into a, uh, some important uh, topic, or, or I think a better way to put it is uh, to look at some doctrinal subjects. So doctrine just means teaching. What does the Bible teach on these things? Sometimes they have been historic beliefs that we must hold on to as Christians. Uh, For example, um, a few summers ago we looked at the five solas. Um, This summer really is going to be no different. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at a specific um, doctrine connected to some topics. Uh, The world around us is changing very quickly. What was considered um, unthinkable, what was considered even disgusting, is now accepted and touring public libraries. What only a decade or so ago was touted by proponents as um, needing to be safe, legal, and rare is now shouted and celebrated. Christians who were once looked for or looked to for their virtue and their loving kindness, and their own local communities now are being mocked and vilified for those same traits, their virtue, their loving kindness, their steadfastness to God's word. Those who hold to a biblical view of anything are quickly being cast aside at best, uh, sometimes falsely made into monsters, racists, or hate-fueled oppressors at worst. And so I want to take a few weeks to address some of these issues, but I want to acknowledge right at the beginning that we face um, a danger in our own hearts, the danger of looking to the world for relief from these things. We face the danger of looking for political answers to what are truly spiritual battles. And so, as Christians, we must, as the preacher of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, he he writes this Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is Hebrews chapter 11, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. So through all of this, through all of the headlines that we read, the articles that we'll see online, the news reports that we will hear, we must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So in our study of John's gospel, we're looking to Jesus. In fact, in most of John's gospel is a study in the incarnation, a study of Jesus in the flesh the signs that he did, and the, and the teachings that he taught. In fact, Jesus' ministry can be seen kind of in, in three aspects. In the incarnation, in which Jesus became like us, truly man. In the resurrection, in which he promises that we will become like him, raised to walk in newness of life. And in the ascension, that is, where he is, we also will be. And he's gone to prepare a place for us to the Father's house. So last week as we looked at the closing verses of John chapter 10, chapter 11 kind of stands on its own in the narrative. It kind of jumps us forward, really, brings us, links us to chapter 12. So there's this transition in John chapters 11 and 12 bringing us to the what we call sometimes the book of the glory. John 11 speaks of the resurrection of Lazarus, really speaks of both things. The book of the signs, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the book of the glory, the resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life, he will say. So there's kind of a natural break here in the writings at the end of chapter 10. And so um, this week as I was studying, I, I thought, well, we just need to jump into this. We, we just need to look at these things. And so last week, we looked at those closing verses from John 10, and we saw that Jesus Christ is truly, holy, fully God, and at the same time, He is also truly holy, that's with a W and an H, uh, fully man. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they paint a a clear picture of the incarnation of Jesus. And so, for example, in John, we've seen His signs. We have heard His teachings. Matthew and Luke, we read of His birth in detail. Mark speeds us to the cross. And all four Gospels tell us of various aspects of His life and death. And the same goes for the resurrection. All four tell us of His victory over the grave. But I would guess that if you asked your fellow, um, maybe your unbelieving friends... Or your family members, how they saw Jesus? You'd probably get a variety of answers. Some picture Jesus as a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Others picture him as, a, as an itinerant preacher, a miracle worker, dressed in a white robe with a blue sash, children at his feet. Still others might picture Jesus on the cross. Or possibly, as our victorious, risen Savior, maybe they think of Him pleading with Thomas to believe in Him, showing Him the, the holes in His hands and feet and in His side. And while some of those things ring true, in fact, most of them are true, except for maybe the no crying He makes part, um, those things are important. Those things are even glorious, there's so much more to Jesus than that. See, the story of Jesus's life does not end with him walking off into the sunset on the road to Emmaus. Consider it this way. The Bible does not tell us what happened to Lazarus after he was raised from the dead by Jesus. It doesn't tell us. But it also doesn't simply say that Jesus just lived happily ever after. The focus of the story of the resurrection of Lazarus is not Lazarus. We'll see that when we get into it. It's Jesus. And in telling the story of Jesus' resurrection, the Bible moves quickly in all the gospel accounts. The Bible moves quickly from his raising from the dead to his ascension to heaven where he is now seated at God's right hand, ruling the church and awaiting the day in which he will come forth in power to judge the living and the dead. And so as we face the difficult topics um, over these next couple of weeks, as we talk about these things, we have to do so in light of the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of where he is right now and the importance of how he got there. I want to lay the foundation today for these things, and I want to lay it in the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because it is his ascension to glory that Paul wrote of, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, when he said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this exaltation that Paul writes of there in Philippians 2, It was the physical act of bringing Jesus to heaven and the Lord saying to him, our Lord saying to our Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this morning we're going to break this doctrine down into two sections. Um, We're going to jump around a little bit, so I apologize in advance, but the two sections that we're going to look at are the part one of the basic um, characteristics of the ascension, And then part two is kind of the the theological implications for us. Or what does it mean for us as far as our relationship with God? How does it affect how we respond to the particular challenges that we face here in 2019? We're going to be primarily in three passages of Scripture. We're going to move around a little bit, but primarily in three passages of Scripture. And I want to read all three uh, right now. The first two are the historical account of the Ascension. Both are written by Luke, um, right at the very end of Luke's gospel, in the very beginning of the book of Acts. And then the third is a passage um, from a sermon preached by an unknown uh, preacher to the Hebrews, uh, to those Jewish Christians, about the glories of Christ. So uh, Luke chapter 24, we're going to start here. I'm going to read Luke 24, then we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 1, and then Hebrews chapter 4. Luke 24 I'm going to begin in verse 36 and just through the end of the chapter there. As they were talking about these things Jesus himself stood among them and said to them peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought he was a spirit. They saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Flip over to Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 11. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Just verses 14, 15 and 16. The preacher of Hebrews proclaims this, uh, Hebrews 4:14, 4, "Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Our Father, I ask that you would um, help us to understand these things today. Give us ears to hear that we might glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first part of this is the, the basic characteristics of the, um, of the ascension will be in Luke and Acts mostly. And this is obviously uh, from, from Luke's writings, both in Luke and in Acts. We're going to be flipping back and forth just a little bit. And I'm going to give you three characteristics. And then we're going to quickly move to the Hebrews passage. I hope it's quick. Um, because that's where we're going to get into the, the implications for us. So as we begin, the first characteristic that Jesus, uh, of Jesus' ascension is that he ascended into heaven bodily. He ascended into, into heaven in a, in a physical form, in his earthly form. In both of these passages, in Luke and in Acts, Jesus was carried up to heaven in the immediate While he blessed them, Luke says. And then in Acts he writes, as they were looking on. They saw this happen. It's almost as if they're in the middle of a conversation. They were literally standing there talking, or or walking along talking, and and the disciples, maybe they were they were just simply listening to the things that he was teaching them. They they were no doubt still in awe that he had come back from the dead. And as he was giving them instruction, maybe some of his final instructions, seemingly out of nowhere, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. He didn't just vanish. He didn't gradually fade into the ether like some kind of ghost. He was literally lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. But, but there's another detail that Luke included in his gospel is as proof of both uh, the resurrection and his ascension, that they were both uh, physical acts, he ate a piece of broiled fish. It, look at verses 38 and 39 of Luke 24. Verse 38, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And After this, he said, anybody got anything to eat? I'm hungry. And he ate a piece of fish in front of them. Um, Jesus is insisting here. He's insisting that his resurrection is genuine. He's not a ghost. He's insisting that his resurrection is, is physical, that it's not just simply a spiritual resurrection, as some will even tell you today. His dead body was alive again. This was impossible. This is impossible. This could not happen. Dead people do not come back to life, especially when they've been in the ground for three days. Yet here he is, in the flesh. And by verse 50, he's still in the flesh, there's no change. Verse 44, he said to them. Verse 45 and 46 says, then he opened their minds to to understand the scriptures and said to them. And then in verses 50 and 51, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. All too often, we kind of fail to connect these statements that Jesus makes at the end of Luke. Uh, We fail to connect His proving that the resurrection was real with the fact that the ascension is real too. We sometimes forget about this, that He ascended bodily. And then sometimes we um, don't connect that Jesus makes a promise here. In both Acts and in Luke, He promises that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the nations, and then immediately He physically goes to heaven. And think Stephen in Acts chapters 7 and 8, empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and looking up at the end of his sermon, he proclaims, behold, I see the heavens open, rolled back as a scroll and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus literally stood up to welcome Stephen into his rest as they martyred him. He physically got up. It brings us to the second characteristic of the ascension, and that not only was Jesus taken up physically, but he also went to a real place. The language of Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11 is not spiritual language. It It is literal, physical language. Look at just these verses again, 9, 10, and 11, and... When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come uh, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. A cloud took Jesus up out of their sight, far away. That's the idea. He started to ascend. He started to go up and he went far up out of their sight. Uh, Graduation party time. Went and bought a few balloons yesterday. You know what happens with balloons when you let them go, right? They go up out of your sight unless the teenagers get them and inhale the helium, which may or may not have happened uh, at our house. But when you let a balloon go, it goes up and eventually it's out of your sight and you can't see it anymore. That's the idea. Jesus went up out of their sight and they stood there gazing up into heaven. And that's not a metaphor. They stood there with their mouths open looking up into the sky in awe of all that they have just experienced. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Luke says that he took them out as far as Bethany. In other words... He took them to a real place. And then he, Jesus, went to a different real place while they returned to Jerusalem, which is another real place. That's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus went to a real place. He went to heaven. A little while later, Stephen, Stephen saw him in heaven. He saw him standing at the right hand of the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus went to heaven as a forerunner, as our forerunner on our behalf, securing our eternal redemption by means of his sacrifice and is seated at the Father's right hand where he always lives to make intercession for us. The Bible tells us that the disciples saw him go there and that Stephen saw him there. And if I could put it this way, with all due respect to publishers of fake books, heaven is a real place. We know this because of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we know this because of the Word of God. I want you to turn to another passage in First Peter, no, 2 Peter, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1. I want to read just a couple of verses so you can understand what I'm saying why we trust in the apostles' witness, why we trust in the words of God's word. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter um, writes this. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. And yet, verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, don't just take my word for it. Take the Holy Spirit's word for it. Peter was an eyewitness of both the transfiguration and the, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And yet he points his readers here as he writes this letter. He points them to a more sure testimony of the truth of the majesty of Jesus Christ. Namely, he points them to the testimony of Scripture, which was written by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he says. Heaven is real, and Jesus went to a real place, and we know this because we trust in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our highest authority. And then the third characteristic of the ascension is that the ascension was to fulfill a promise, actually many promises that are all linked together. Jesus tells them there in Luke chapter 24, I know we're flipping back and forth a lot, but he says in 24 verse 49, he says, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And similarly, he writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is a reiteration of the promise that he had made to them in, in John chapter 16. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read this. In John chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus says this, Kind of in the beginning, in the middle of verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. There is much work there, or much described there, about the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, and we'll get there um, eventually. But today I want to point out this, that Jesus says here that He ascended to the Father, that He would ascend to the Father to fulfill this promise. The promise that He would send the Spirit, the Helper, to guide us, to guide believers into all the truth, He says. And connected with that promise, connected with the promise to send the Holy Spirit, and fulfilled at the ascension, fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, today is Pentecost Sunday, There's another promise. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes this. He says, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And then Paul says this, and it's in parentheses in English there in the Bible. But he says, In saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, into the earth incarnation? He also, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In verse 7 there in Ephesians 4, 7, that's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 8. So what the scriptures here in these places are telling us is that when Jesus Christ ascended to God's right hand, He led a host of captives to freedom and he gave gifts to the church. In fact, the next verse after that passage actually says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So, the ascension of Jesus Christ led to a sure foundation for his church. It led to the gift of the Holy Spirit. It led to the word being given to the church to proclaim the gospel to all nations. But there's one more promise that I want to point out before we move into Hebrews chapter 4. And it's the promise of Psalm 110. I want to read this one too. Psalm 110 says this. It's a brief psalm, but just listen to this. a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The promise here that is fulfilled at the ascension is that Christ is ruling from the right hand of the Father and one day Christ will execute judgment on his enemies. But even before that, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know who Melchizedek was, he was the king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem later. Uh, in early Genesis. and He was also a priest who was dedicated to the worship of God. He was a king ruling in Jerusalem, and he was also a priest dedicated to the worship of God. See, Jesus is not only ascended to God's right hand as king, and he is, but the work that he has done and continues to do is high priestly work. It is the work of a priest on our behalf. So turn to Hebrews chapter four. We're going to spend the rest of our time here in Hebrews four. uh, Verses four through sixteen, fourteen through sixteen. Psalm one ten verse four. It said, "You are." A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're a king and a priest. And verse 14 here says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is part two, the the implications, the theological implications of the ascension. What does this mean for us? Just a really little bit of background here um, on Hebrews. For centuries, Hebrews was thought to be the, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. In fact, um, many at least. King James versions still say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, As early as the 4th century, however, um, some prominent theologians have questioned whether or not this is the work of Paul or someone else, maybe like Apollos or or Barnabas or someone unknown. But more importantly, uh, people believe, many believe, that Hebrews is is a sermon on Psalm 110 I just read. It's a sermon expressing the, the majesty and superiority of Christ and, and also an encouragement for these Jewish Christians, these ancient Hebrew Christians, and, and, and by extension now us, to persevere in the faith, even, even in the face of sometimes violent opposition. In just chapters three and four, the, the preacher here gives, gives three resources for Perseverance. It's the fellowship and encouragement of the church. In in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A, A resource that we have for perseverance is the church. It's the one another's and exhorting one another. It's the word of God in verse 12 of chapter 4. He says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We can lean on the church. We can lean on exhortation and encouragement from the church and we especially lean on God's word. And the third um, tool for perseverance, so to speak, is prayer. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And, and often as Christians, we jump straight to this. Sometimes, it really got loud, <laughs> we jump straight to this prayer. Sometimes we, tr- we tie Christ's ability to withstand temptations to our prayers, But there's another foundation here that's incredibly important and actually gives our prayer more power and also bases our prayers in the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of in our own desires. And so beginning back in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, the preacher asks us to consider Jesus. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, much more glory as the the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. Consider Jesus, he says, and and this Jesus leads us to a better rest, he says, at the rest of chapter 3, a more permanent, promised land than Moses did. But then there in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, the preacher tells us of Jesus' work as our high priest, and he actually continues that thread all the way through chapter 8, but from these few verses, I want to point out two points and two points of application. The first is this, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. As we face sin in the world becoming bolder and bolder and bolder, as we feel it getting closer and closer to home. It's not just on the news anymore. Now we know people. We need to remember that the reason that we persevere in the faith, the reason that we do not capitulate to the world, is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ who has secured our salvation. When the preacher of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as our high priest, he is emphasizing Christ's atoning work on the cross. And in so doing, he's setting up this this contrast between between what Jesus did in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. He's contrasting that with with the ceremonial duties performed by Israel's priests. All the sacrifices and the offerings that they would perform in the tabernacle and then later in the temple daily. But as Christians, Jesus is our great high priest, he says. Not just our high priest, but our great high priest. And he's great because he's the son of man. That's Daniel 7. He has been given, Daniel 7 tells us, he has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And because because He is Jesus, the perfect Son of God, His shed blood was sufficient once and for all time to satisfy the just wrath of God. He fully fully and completely achieved what Israel's ancient priests could not achieve, a finished atonement, payment for sins. He achieved that paid-in-full stamp. See, the high priest Aaron and those after him, their sacrifices had to be repeated regularly, some of them daily. But Jesus was able to proclaim, it is finished. And Jesus is also our great high priest because unlike a a sinful priest who needed to to make atonement for his own sins and then carefully enter into the Holy of Holies with with a sacrificial offering every year at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Jesus passed through the heavens to the true tabernacle, the true Holy of Holies, right straight into the throne room of God and after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. I'll prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says this. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into our inner place, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, those are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then in chapter 10, the preacher says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the application of this first point, which was then we have a we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. The application is this let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? Go back to Jesus' words just before he passed through the heavens. In Luke 24, verses 45 to 48, he says, Thus it was written, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Paul said something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." He will remind Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, it is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Your life, your life depends upon your confession. And you are able to hold fast to it. Because your great high priest has passed through the heavens as your forerunner to prepare the way for you. And he sits at God's right hand as a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul who has, by means of his own shed blood, secured your eternal redemption, perfecting for all time you who are being sanctified. But there's even more to it because... As our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25 says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, because he continues forever as our great high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, are, who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand that if you are His, Jesus Christ is sitting next to the Father praying for you. Do you understand that? If you are His, He is sitting next to the Father praying always living to make intercession for you, praying for you, why would he do that? Why would the king of glory sit next to his father at God's right hand and pray for me, for you? Well, that's the second point there. It's because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are Yet without sin. If that first point, verse 14, if that emphasized Jesus' deity, that He is truly God, then this second one emphasizes his humanity, that He is truly fully man. And be sure of this, this does not mean this does not mean that because Jesus withstood temptation, so can you. That's not what this means it means that He was sent into the world because you couldn't withstand temptation. Because I could not withstand temptation. Because even the high priest, even the most holy of humans, the ancient Israelite high priest, was weak and fell into temptation and stood daily at His service and in the end still died. But Jesus, once and for all time. And yet this this Christ, who suffered... This Christ was led like a sheep to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. Jesus in his humanity suffered greatly. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples continued to miss the point until he died. One of them ripped him off and betrayed him. Another of his disciples denied him to his face. They locked eyes three times. The rest of the disciples abandoned him. He was mocked by his own countrymen. His father turned his back on him. He suffered physical pain and spiritual pain and emotional pain. He suffered loneliness and rejection. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he is not disinterested in you. He cares. And he, and he prays for you. Go home this week, this week and read John 17. Read how Jesus prays for you, how He prays for His disciples and prays for us. He's interceding on your behalf. He is, if if we could put it this way and understand this, He's preaching the gospel to the Father. He's proclaiming what He has done to the Father. That's why we don't give up. No matter what manner of evil this world throws at us, because the risen Christ, with his glorified flesh, is seated at God's right hand, pleading your case before his righteous and loving Father. His righteousness represents you at the mercy seat. Jesus walked into the throne room of heaven, opened the way for you, established a place for you, praised to his Father, who is certain to answer all of his prayers. Therefore, the application is this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then boldly walk into Christ's, into the Father's throne room where Christ is seated at his right hand. As we tackle some sticky subjects over the next month or so, we're facing, we face these subjects every day. Every time you turn on the news or uh, all over the place, we're facing these things. We need to remember that our hope and our foundation is this. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And we need to remember that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So let us hold fast our confession, and let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our Jesus is glorious. Our Jesus is glorious. And he understands these things. And he sees the headlines. And he is still seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And he always lives to make intercession for us, his children. So let's depend upon him. pray with me. father i pray that we would begin to understand the glorious um, nature of our savior then when paul writes that um, you have exalted him above every name that we would have an understanding even a even a little bit of an understanding of what that even looks like what that even means As we think of Jesus ascending to heaven. Where he is a priest. After the order of Melchizedek. Where he reigns and rules. And intercedes on our behalf. And that he has not left us alone. But has left us with a helper. Another comforter. To guide us in all the truth. Father, we ask that we would depend upon you, that your spirit would guide us as we work through these things and try and understand how to interact with people with very different beliefs than ours, and as we we learn to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray that your name would be praised, in Jesus' name, amen.